Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this. Talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm Essie Fleenor, and I ship Deadpool and Spider-Man, Spidey Pool for life. I'm Sarah Century, and I ship... Spider-Man and Johnny Storm. Also a great ship. What's their ship name? Uh, <laughs> Hot Spidey. <laughs> <laughs> Done. Hottie Man. Hottie Man! Hottie Man! <laughs> That's their ship name. It's actually my superhero name, Hottie Man. We have a question from this dumb rumpus, friend of the pod, who also is a host of Artifacts of Infinity podcast. This dumb rumpus reached out to us via Twitter to ask, what would you say is the difference between the portrayal of a good straight or gay relationship versus a good portrayal of a bisexual relationship if you've only got time to show them in one relationship? Very nuanced question here. I love it. So, as our resident bisexual, hello, this is Essie, you know, resident bisexual, among other things. I think that it's important to think about first the fact that bi people aren't defined by their relationships. So, that means that, like, bisexual characters can be in or out of a relationship, and the fidelity of the portrayal has to do with the fidelity of your ability to, to write authentic characters, which I think is really true across identity and across sexuality, what have you, because characters who ring true are themselves all the time, not just when someone identifies them to be X, Y, Z, gender, sexuality, race, whatever it is that that we're talking about. And we'll keep it to gender and sexuality. I don't know, Sarah, what do you think? Have you thought about this at all? Well, yeah, I mean, I think I have a little bit. I am not bisexual. I am gay. And so it makes it a little bit different, I'm sure, as far as just what my perspective is. But I mean, I think that you should be able to portray a character who is bisexual with relatively little difficulty. But we've seen people go really wrong directions with that. You know, we have a lot of relationships where the second they're in a gay relationship, then all of their other relationships don't matter anymore. And I mean, that is pretty much what my journey was. <laughs> but I think that it's not that way for everybody because bisexuality exists. We talked a lot about that on the Whedon episode that just went up not too long ago where we were saying, you know, maybe Willow could have played around with her sexuality a little bit more or, you know, explored it. You know, maybe it wasn't just immediate lesbian. And then whenever Buffy does the same exact thing, she sleeps with one girl and is like, well, I guess I was just straight. These are things that do happen. But it's just questionable when you see it, you know, multiple times from the same writer and you're just kind of like, oh, you just don't know about bisexuality. <laughs> like, you don't think that it's a thing. Absolutely. And and I think that so many people don't understand that bisexuality is, is also not one thing. You know, lots of people experience their bisexuality in a variety of ways. Some people are like, I'm mostly attracted to one gender or one gender presentation. However, I'm bisexual. A common joke you'll, you'll hear from by plus women is I'm interested in one man and all women and <laughs> yeah. very binary still, but I, I think the joke is pretty solid regardless. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, and obviously that's kind of the thing, right? Is, is that queer communities are always about 
not only eschewing binaries, but also playing around with them, you know? So that's Mm. something that's very important is that it's not all no binary, you know, like there is no binary, you know, it's, that's not the entire conversation, you know, like there's a lot of people who, I mean, that's just as many colors as the rainbow, quite frankly, because. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way of putting it, Sarah. Something that I, I started really solidifying as an idea in grad school was, oh, like gender doesn't exist. Except gender really does exist in this world, right? Like it's it's not a salient concept that is a given that is part of the natural existence of beings. Right. However, because of how we have organized ourselves in our societies and cultures, gender is real and has a real impact. Totally. And I think that's the queerness that you're talking about is like playing with that dual reality of like not real, real, not real, real. And being like, okay, how do we blend that? How do we again break down the not real, real binary and say like things can be both at the same time? So I think, yeah, I'm totally with you. Basically just because I always have been essentially binary. Like I've always been a person who felt very comfortable being a woman. A lot of my life has been me, you know, cultivating womanhood and like kind of seeking it out, finding it obviously in a very gay way, but like (laughs) also in the way of, you know, just like my personality is also, you know, very gay, but also (laughs) has a lot to do with finding the women around and kind of finding power within femininity and things like that. Because I think that, you know, there's always that, well, femininity is intrinsically weaker I have never seen that to be the case ever in my life and so I always want to look at the strength of that and be able to celebrate that and of course that's the thing too is like I say binary womanhood is something that is has always appealed to me and has always been something I was comfortable with obviously (laughs) I'm not comfortable with things like institution of marriage (laughs) like you know you have to have 12 kids you know like you should always put other people before yourself like all of that kind of stuff I think is absolute bullshit but I think that that's structural and so Mm -hmm. even with me Mm -hmm. being like hey I really am comfortable with binary womanhood I also fucking that's not the end of the goddamn story ever so (laughs) you can't you can't make my perspective be the perspective, right? But you can't do that with anybody. Everybody gets to have their own exploration through these things because, as you say, it's kind of real. It's kind of not real. <laughs> it's a little bit of both. Well, and I think that Jacob Tobia says it best in, in, in their memoir, Sissy. They say that everybody has a gender journey. Everybody. Because at some point in your life, you were told to man up or act like a lady or whatever it was, and that was a moment when a binary gender system exerted control over how you express your gender. I'm actually talking to you, listener. How you express your gender has been <laughs> regulated by external forces. If you're non-binary, if you've really played with those expressions, you know this. You're like, duh. But if you haven't, like that can be really revelatory for people. And I think that it's important for us to engage in that because it says, yes, Sarah, great. I'm so happy that you identify as a woman and feel safe and comfortable in that identity. And exactly what Sarah said about, I like gender expression, I like gender community, but I don't like these gender roles. I don't like the way that my gender is regulated or treated like it's weaker. And I think those are really important things to play with. The other thing I'll say is like, as a non-binary person who is assigned female at birth, my partner identifies as a non-binary man. And as they are playing with their gender expression, I'm seeing so much more femininity and we're femming up and I'm not, I don't identify as femme or as as feminine, but it's so nice to be around because it makes me challenge my internalized misogyny. I didn't know that I, I wasn't in the right gender box or whatever you want to call it, but I knew that I wasn't woman or girl the way that other people were. And I knew that those words felt limiting. And for me, it wasn't just because sexism is so rampant, but because those weren't the right words, right? But as I discovered my non-binariness, as I embraced my non-binariness, the pendulum swung in a direction where I was rejecting all things feminine, all things woman, all things girl. And then I had this great moment where I listened to a talk by a trans non-binary person who had this dilemma around deciding what to be called as a parent by their child. And so they talk a lot about like different options they went through and what they ultimately settled on. But they said something in it that really, for me, helped me think about how I want to be in the world as a non-binary person, which was when we reject the feminine as non-binary people, we're actually saying that the feminine is lesser. And that's a problem 
because the truth is femininity is not a bad thing. Masculinity is not a bad thing. Anything in between is not a bad thing. It's the way those things are weaponized and used against people who don't fit in masculinity or femininity or people who fit in both masculinity and femininity. That's the problem. And so I think that we're a little bit going on a tangent, but I think when you're asking a question about gay, straight, bisexual relationships, gender is a huge part of that. And so for me, what's important about portraying a bisexual person or bisexual people in a relationship is letting them still be bi. For Legends of Tomorrow, I'm thinking about Sarah Lance. She dates all kinds of people throughout history, but her main relationship so far is with Ava. and. If you only are watching the most recent seasons, you might not know that she sort of banged her way through history, which was very, very cute. But I mean, an enjoyable, delightful, and millions of words. Stole weed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so good. We're going to do a special review at some point. <laughs> she did all the things I would do. So, right? Bang some nurses, like, you know, yeah. enjoy it. Become Lancelot, etc. cetera. Uh, <laughs> but now in their relationship, it's not like Sarah's no longer allowed to be like, Oh, that person is attractive. Like she says that when she sees men that she finds attractive or she's allowed to still be all the other things that make people buy, right? Like bi culture is a real thing. Bisexual finger guns, right? Sarah does them all the time. You know, <laughs> sitting weird in chairs. Sarah does that all the time. You know, <laughs> like those are all things that are part of bi culture and part of her bisexuality. I also think the way that she's really allowed to mourn the loss of Oliver in this season especially in the crossover when she was more in that zone, is really powerful. Ava doesn't shame her for missing someone who's a man, who's an ex. She doesn't not get it. She doesn't any of the things that we sometimes see in these relationships with one person who's bi where their partner mistrusts them. She's like, yeah, of course he meant so much to you. And I think that that was like a really, really powerful moment. Of course, it's a little bit of an exception to your rule because we see her in other relationships. But I think even if we just take their relationship apart from everything else, I see Sarah as by the entire time. And I see their love as no less powerful because of it, you know, or actually maybe even more powerful because they both accept who they are. And I think that's a really radical representation. I think so, too. I think that that's part of what's so important about whenever you're writing person who is bisexual in a couple is essentially just. They have past relationships, and so not erasing those is probably one of the most important things. And, you know, whenever it comes to Willow, I know that there's a lot of people who are just like, hey, <laughs> she was probably bi, you did a weird thing. I watched it as a lesbian, so to me I was like, yeah, now she's like into this girl who's like a total babe. That makes perfect sense to me. And I also totally forgot about Oz, so <laughs> this all makes sense. <laughs> but like... <laughs> But, you know, that wasn't the case for a lot of people because a lot of people would still have that strong connection to their past relationship. A lot of people would be like, yeah, I was with that guy for two years. It was a really important relationship. Someone who's bisexual or even, you know, I'm sure that there are lesbians that cherish their past relationships with men. I am certainly <laughs> not one of them. But like, <laughs> but I would say that. You burnt. Um, sorry, men. But um <laughs> <laughs> Sorry again. Yeah, I think that basically just they made it to the point of she kind of just didn't like Oz didn't really matter anymore, right? She has kind of a tearful goodbye, but it's definitely an emphatic goodbye. <laughs> where she's yeah, I mean, which fair enough. Out. Fuck off. Fair like, enough. What of course. But at the same time, like you know, I I think that there is a different arc for a lot of people, and so when you're talking about bisexual characters, I guess basically just not erasing that part of their lives would probably be a great place to start. I completely agree. And I think when I think about Willow, what I see as the problem is not that she came to the conclusion she's gay. I mean, like more power to you, girl, but that because of the way the series, and I think this is a real limitation of TV at the time, as much as we can talk about Joss Whedon's own issues with things too. And we have, see episode 31. I think it's a limitation of the way censors were working. Willow wasn't allowed to talk about and explore and think about who she was even in conversation with Tara, let alone with Buffy, with Giles, you know, whoever, other queer women she probably knows at college because, hello, that whole conversation gets stifled. So then because it's this, this pressure to be like the representation, right? The first lesbian kiss on TV is between Willow and Tara. And it's not even until I think season six. And it's when 
after Joyce dies. That's the and first And it's right kiss. after she dies. Yeah. <laughs> or right before she dies. Right. It's it's so devastating. I think that that's what was missing. It's like, yes, anybody can come to any conclusion about their sexuality at any time. Good for you. But we should honor that people explore. People explore mm-hmm. their sexualities. They explore their genders. Yes, they do it physically with people, but they also do it in conversation. Right. It's not always just like flipping a switch or something, which sometimes it totally is. But, exactly. But not often, actually. You know, for the most part, you're dealing with, it's hard to get into statistics, but I would assume that there's more bisexual people than there is binary, like gay people or whatever. Yeah, I mean, like you said, it's hard to do the statistics. But yes, the the general way we talk about it is that bi-plus folks make up more than half of the LGBTQ community. But there's so little representation of it, right? So you have sometimes, but almost always, it's like the flip of a switch. It's like the willow ends up with like somebody else immediately and never again thought of men ever in her life. And so... Which more power to you, girl. Yeah. But it's very rare, is all I'm going to say. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk about one other example, which is a newer TV show that I've been watching because the CW, man, they get the gays and the queers. They love us. And so I've been watching Legacies, which is like the third TV show in the Vampire Diaries series. (laughs) Stop judging me. I have not seen all of the Vampire Diaries. I'm watching it right now. I started it because I started watching Legacies and I started watching Legacies because I knew there was like a bisexual witch in it. And I was like, Mm -hmm. sign me the fuck up. So they have this great character named Josie and she is bi. And when she's first portrayed, she's in a relationship with a woman who hates her twin. And so there's like lots of tension there. Then she has a romance with a dude who has a romance with her other like pseudo sister Okay, it's drama, drama, drama. It's delightful. But I think that the representation of Josie has so much strength to it because she's still bi when she's not in a relationship. She's still attracted to women when she's not in a relationship and men. She still flirts. She's still like figuring out who she is and what her identity is. And so even when we see her in relationship, if you only see her in one, because the first one's really, really short, her relationship with Landon's a bit longer It doesn't feel like a change. It feels like Josie's still the same person. And that's what I would say, building on what what Sarah said about, like, don't erase their past, but also, like, they're not a different person. I'm not a different person when I'm in a relationship with a woman, a man, or a non-binary person. I'm still me. And even if some of the things that happen in my relationship or some of the discrimination I face or whatever is different, I'm still me. And I want to take a second to bust right through a myth that people who are from binary genders or who are in gay or lesbian, monosexual, people who are bi plus actually experience a lot of distress because of how we're put in the closet if we seem to be in a straight or gay relationship. And so we are often coded as, oh, you're a lesbian. And I've had plenty of relationships with women where I was told I was a lesbian and I was like, wait. This is like the one thing I knew about myself when I started being attracted to women was like, that's not it for me. That pressure to be like, oh, so you're a lesbian really hurt me, not just in a way where it made my relationships more complicated. It did. But also where I wasn't allowed to be like, no, like there's actually a a lot to me beyond that. So I think it's really important to let bi people be bi all the time. If you're going to create characters who are bi, let them be bi. And don't fall on stereotypes. Don't make everything about threesomes, though. Hey, more power to you if you're having those threesomes bi people. I'm here for it. And, and, you know, don't make it don't make them deceptive. You know, they don't need to be someone who's manipulating people. Don't have them use their sexuality to manipulate people. That is a huge damaging stereotype of bi oh, people. Oh, or the one where the bisexual person is just like, hey, what's up? Hey, what's up? Hey, what's up? Yeah, <laughs> so they're not, like every being person. Being bi doesn't mean you're attracted to everyone, right? Yeah. Like, I am, but that's me. You don't have to be. <laughs> As you are your own very unique bisexual. <laughs> thirst. Yeah. I have a deep, deep thirst. <laughs> um Yeah, I think that that's all true. I want to kind of compound on what you were saying in real life with a fictional example, (laughs) um, which is Catwoman. So I think that when we talk about a character whose bisexuality is repeatedly erased, Catwoman is a prime example of that. And the fact that it is repeatedly erased in service to her relationship with Batman, I think is important to note. 
So you have these characters that are always so kind of bizarrely heteronormative in their behaviors towards one another because neither of them, (laughs) you know, neither of them seem like the kind of person who's like, let's get married or something like that, you know? So I think that even just that in and of itself, I really like them as people who go apart from each other and come back to each other and date other people in between and things like that because I think that that's an important relationship that we really don't see that often because almost always the way that people look at things is, end result marriage but that's not all love stories by any stretch of the imagination so i just think that they have a really interesting dynamic that gets kind of downplayed whenever people are like they have to be in this you know monogamous long-term thing which like obviously a lot of people i for one am a very monogamous person so i don't (laughs) judge monogamy but i do kind of wish that it wasn't the only way so i think that whenever you're looking at characters like Batman and Catwoman. Catwoman is one of the few characters who has an on-panel kiss. She's a classic legacy character, and she's been around since 1940, and she has an on-screen kiss with another character, a woman who is like a crime boss. It's pretty sweet. And (laughs) all of that story is great. (laughs) It's extremely hot, but they completely never follow up on it. It's just... They have one kiss, it's done, they never talk about it again. And to the point where a lot of people now are, well, her sexuality got rebooted, so now she's straight, you know, (laughs) and stuff like that. You see that argument all of the time. And I think that her relationship with Batman in a lot of ways has erased that, and it didn't have to. It would be really easy to let her still be bisexual and even still be with Batman. We talked this entire conversation about why it's easy to do that. It's not impossible to do that. But it's like it also changes her character in a lot of ways that I think, you know, make her a less interesting character because her whole personality is just in service of Batman's story. So that's like one of the most damaging examples, I think. Like it's fun to watch them kind of play at like a marriage and be like, hey, bat, hey, cat, you know, like all of that is like kind of cute. It got annoying after like 80 issues of it. But, (laughs) you know, I mean, it was kind of sweet and everything. But I just think that that relationship and how we've seen it portrayed lately has done a lot of damage to Catwoman's character overall, because we're just not seeing her in her own light anymore. Yeah, I think that I think that's such a great way of putting it, Sarah. I think that when we strip away these identities from people, we do more damage than simply quote-unquote rebooting their sexuality which makes me want to throw myself off a bridge yeah we take away some of their dynamism we take away some of their way of connecting with the world i want to bring it back to like i hate that we're so sure that someone is bisexual if they're alone but then that thing is different or some people are like oh i used to get this a lot like you're the gayest bisexual i've ever met and i was like what does that mean And then like a year later, someone was like, you're the straightest bisexual person I've ever met. And I was like, again, what does that mean? Like, what are you (laughs) trying to tell me about myself? I think I'm pretty great. Thanks. Yeah, that's a weird one. I don't know. I feel like I would never say something like that to somebody, but I guess some people would. (laughs) Yeah, well, you're not an asshat. I guess I'm not. I don't know. Sometimes it's I do impress myself just for not (laughs) being a complete ass. You're like, look at me not being an asshat. Yeah, no, I'm proud of you for that. You know, the other, I, I want to talk about one by male example. I don't know Dakin as well, but do you want to talk about Dakin at all? I always call him Dakin. So yeah, Dakin is a character who was introduced to Marvel, Wolverine's son, who's very angry and snotty and, and very uh, pretty. Wolverine and wants to kill him. Very pretty guy. And even from the beginning, he uses a lot of flirtation and fights and things like that. He uses men's toxic masculinity against them a lot, which is always fun to watch, you know. <laughs> also just is a bisexual character, pansexual. And also flirts a lot with the very comparatively square <laughs> Bobby Drake. <laughs> So that's always really cute. I mean, I think that I probably am going to have to be a Iceman Christian Frost shipper. But, uh, you know, if I had a second ship, I think it would be with Dakin. Mm. Sometimes maybe a Thrubble. Who knows? But Dakin is a really interesting character because he does a lot of villainous things. He also is more complicated than that. He sees the things that, you know, have ruined his father's life, <laughs> essentially, and kind of tries to have more fun with it i guess than his dad did and so he kind of still is uh, you know an assassin and goes after people and is an extreme example i guess of 
<laughs> of a mutant, but he's uh, very pretty, has a mohawk, has a lot of tattoos, is very flirtatious. I really appreciate that he's so flirtatious because I think that that's something that, you know, as as I've said before, we have constant queer couples who just immediately couple up and you kind of never see a flirtation stage. And so just seeing Dickin being very openly flirtatious with a lot of different people is always really interesting. I think like he he has no doubts about who he is, which is the other part that's so attractive about Dickin is like he he knows he's bi and he doesn't care. He doesn't care that people have issues with that. He's like, sounds like y'all have a lot of issues with a lot of things. you know. Yeah. And has more of that Vampirilla approach, right? Where it's just mm-hmm. kind of, I just like a lot of different people. <laughs> like it's totally fine. And uh, Iceman probably will date like two guys in his entire life. And again, <laughs> will date like 70. It's fine. Like- exactly. Exactly. Well, that that's a great segue into our other character who will date 70 billion people in his life (laughs) is john constantine um i i mean we we know i love constantine he's he's like i I think i said on one episode he was like my first favorite character once i understood what comics were and i like the way that he's represented in relationships because sometimes i think there's a lot of pressure to show lgbtq plus folks being good at things and i get why right we've had so much negative representation And I think Constantine's a great example of someone whose representation started pretty problematically and then became honed very beautifully over time. And now in the Legends of Tomorrow series, we're seeing some of the best by Constantine there is, you know, and it's it's really exciting. So, you know, when they first premiered his byness, I think in a thought quote, he says, sleep with women and the odd bloke, something like that. It's like very random. And then we see him in sort of a very fucked up relationship with, and I cannot remember the guy's name, but some rich dude who is messing with forces he should not be. But actually, it turns out Constantine, despite having an attraction to this person, is actually using his sexuality to manipulate him. Boo hiss. But also, it was pretty cool. I mean, it's pretty BDSM. I don't know. I got a lot of mixed feelings about that representation. <laughs> but today, you know, and then and we look at the Ming Doyle and James Tinney in the fourth piece, the Constantine the Hellblazer, which was a comic of the week in March. It's such an incredible representation. We see him in a relationship with someone who's not super powered. You know, he dates, he kind of dates Zatanna. Do they date, date, or are they just like kind of dating? They, it's sometimes, you know, the salty ex situation okay. where they allude to dating. Sometimes they are dating, you know, it's, it's kind of all over the place with those two. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, Zatanna. God, that makes you, sense. You can do better. And also, you know that Constantine is not good enough for Z, so... As much exactly. as I love him, he just isn't. He is in the Bombshells universe. I was just going to say, outside about. of Bombshells. Yeah, in Bombshells, he's like the dude, you know? Like he's prince. the best in that. He's very, very princely. Um, horrible. But in regular universe, mm, no, sorry. He can do better. And she's going to have to eventually, but you're the yes. dude for now. Well, and that's what I like. I like that Constantine screws up all of his relationships. I don't Me think too. <laughs> all bi people do, but I think that like no. that's who he is. Constantine is a mess. Constantine has had horrible things done to him from a child. He's he's dealt with biphobia and homophobia his entire life. He has been through hell and back. Does that excuse his behavior? Hell no. But it contextualizes it. So when we see him so messy, and I mean, he's always fucking with dark arts and shit. And he's like, don't date me. You'll die. And then he dates people and they die. It's like, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. We talked about, you know, his relationship with Oliver, which was really great because it, you know, once again, did not do anything to erase his bisexuality whatsoever. And then also on top of that, you know, he's dating somebody who is just the best, absolutely. And you still see Constantine be Constantine, you know? Yeah. Well, and I, I love that comic run, too, because they show him and the demon Blythe. I think they hook up right before he meets Oliver. But, you know, Blythe is is femme presenting, but also like a creepy, weird demon clown thing. And then in Legends, they do the same thing. They show him fucking up time and time again. He and Charlie have some kind of attraction, which I am here for because Charlie, I'm calling it people, is non-binary. Charlie's gender fluid. I know it. You know it now. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. At the end of the day, let bi people be truly bi. Let them have experiences that are not included in their relationship at the time or and, and show their partner not being jealous, but supportive. I think that's actually the very best thing you can do for a bi person in a relationship with someone who's not bi is let oh God, them have yeah. a partner who is like, 
I love you. <laughs> I don't care who you fucked before. Or if they're in a poly thing, I don't care who else you fuck. I love you. That's my favorite thing about Poison Ivy and Harley is that they have such a healthy polyamorous thing. And you've talked about the Ivy side so many times in so many great ways. So please, Sarah, jump in whenever. There's this moment, I sent the picture to you in the Palmiati Connor run where Ivy's like, ooh, I'm going to keep this sexy beach babe. Like he is cute. And Ivy's like, whatever, keep him if you want. Just put him away when I'm around. And that's hysterical. Like what a funny reversal of gender norms where women are property. Like, I mean, obviously he shouldn't be property, but it's funny. And I thought that that was such a sweet moment for them of like, oh, like your bisexuality isn't gross to me. Like Poison Ivy doesn't hate that Harley wants this dude. Also, Ivy is also bi or pan or whatever label she would choose. I don't know. And I think it's like nice to see them navigate that in really healthy ways. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, I also would look at Zena and Gabrielle as being (laughs) extremely healthy. Oh, Zena and Gabrielle, why didn't I think of that? They're extremely healthy polyamorous couple. I think that that's all really important. I mean, Ivy knows that there's like literally no way that even if she wants to be monogamous, like there's literally no way like they don't even be in the same city half the time, (laughs) you know, and I feel like there's an acceptance from that specific creative team, of course, who were kind of just like, I mean, they can't like they literally can't really be in a monogamous relationship right now, even if they ever wanted to be. And people change, obviously, throughout lives and stuff like that. Some people their entire life some people ultimately go monogamous whatever everybody changes it has a different story this story they fucking make sense as a goddamn polyamorous couple so i just think people should let them be that way so i think that it's one of the more healthy portrayals other than xena and gabrielle of course (laughs) absolutely absolutely so i think i think we've given you some things to think about (laughs) yeah i hope so thinks important about bi relationships and representations like hit us up on twitter or let us know and if you have other questions that build on us please be in touch we want to talk about this the thing that i think is the most important is that <laughs> they ride in on a horse with a sword and a chakra and you leave town with them <laughs> yeah someone ask us a specifically xena and gabrielle question please obviously i'm dying to get it out You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. This week's comic of the week is Ironheart, written by Eve L. Ewing, art by Kevin Lebrando and Luciano Vecchio, colors by Matt Mila, 
Letters by Clayton Cowles. So this is the Ironheart, not the first. Ironheart's story starts in Invincible Iron Man. And then there's another run that I think might be called Ironheart. And then this is an Ironheart actually written by a, a black woman. <laughs> it is really good and so much better for that fact. Yeah, this comic is great. A lot of people got extremely excited whenever this came out. There was a bunch of, of course, dipshits that were, well, like, she's never written a comic, so she doesn't have experience, so she shouldn't be given any comic ever to build experience ever. And then it was- <laughs> Pretty dumb. And uh, so many writers came out in defense of Eve Ewing, which is very important. And I'm glad that they did, because if they didn't, we would look at them as all being a bunch of jerks right now. So it's nice that there was an industry support around this book to begin with. But there was also a ton of people who don't regularly buy comics who were just so into the idea of this. And I think that this book actually brought a lot of readers to comics. So that was great. You know, we talked before, I think we mentioned... Maybe we were on someone else's podcast. I don't even know. We talked too much. But we had talked about how when you read her backstory, I laugh because it's like, oh, my God, what are you doing? It's clearly created by a white person filled with stereotypes about what a young black woman's experience would be. And it's incredible to see Ewing take that that legacy and really bring it home to roost is what I would say. Like, it's really authentic and real in a way that I it, before Ironheart's always cool. She's super fucking cool. She's always going to be cool. Riri is the shit. But this book reads so differently than the other runs, in my opinion. And I think that that's because of who's creating it. Oh, I just love it. I love the whole thing. It's a deeply professional looking book. Like it's beautiful art, you know, beautiful dialogue. Everything is very realistic and, you know, as realistic as we want to see in a superhero comic anyway. (laughs) And it's so that makes it all very good. A lot of the things that she deals with you know, they read as real. So I appreciate all of that. I think that this comic was great. I love her character. I love the establishment of her character and what makes her different from the other Marvel characters. I love the fact that she's always the one who is going to pause to talk to you to make you feel better in the middle of a fight. You know, people, there's people who are very ends justify the means, got to make it to the very, you know, like we got to finish this, solve it, all of that. You have the Batmans, you have like characters like that, that are just all about that end result. Whereas Ironheart again and again, in the middle of a fight, somebody says, I feel sad. (laughs) And she goes, don't, it's okay. I'm here too. We got to do this, but you're doing great. You know, like she's that guy. She's always so, so kind and supportive to other heroes and people who are younger than her and people, you know, even who are older than her. A lot of times she can be that guiding light in a lot of ways and I think that that's so so important that's why it's so important to call her Ironheart you know such a beautiful name and like kind of really encapsulates her character she lives up to that again and again through the series absolutely I mean you're you're totally right like heart is such a defining word for Riri as a person as a hero all of it she's so great in every moment one of my favorite things about this run is the relationship between Riri and her mom They have such a natural relationship. They're so connected. And Riri realizes like, oh, I can look to my mom for support still. Just because I'm a superhero doesn't mean I don't need my mom. And that's like a really sweet thing. And, you know, and her mom's funny and makes fun of her and like in a nice loving way. And is just super present, cares, talks to her about what it means if she wants to leave MIT, why she would want to leave MIT, why she wouldn't want to leave MIT, what it means to be, you know, a genius, a hero, and also to be a person. And uh, uh, it's just so good. Yeah, especially since, I mean, as much as we love Moon Girl, you know, Moon Girl has such a different relationship with her parents, right? You know, you see a lot of superheroes who struggle with their parents. They have to lie to their parents. You know, Tim Drake has to lie to his dad when his dad finds out that he's Robin. He, like, forbids him from ever being Robin again. You know, all of those stories, there's a lot of depth there, I guess, you know, but we've explored that a lot. So having a a character who just has a really loving and supportive mom, I think, is beautiful. And also, it makes sense for Riri. Like, she's a character who has had a lot of traumatic and bad things happen, but, you know, has always had kind of a basis of love around her. And you see that in how she operates in the world. So I think that all of that makes perfect sense. And I do. I really love her mom. Her mom is a 
you know, the mom that we all would love to have. I think she's the mom we all deserve. Yeah, she's she's the mom we deserve. You know, like, and it's nice to see that so often, like you were saying, people have strained relationships with their parents or they have outright malicious parents you know like they're parents that just parents. flat out don't try to meet them halfway or understand yeah. them and you know that's something that we don't really see as much here and as i say there's just something about riri's character that makes all of that be kind of good and fitting obviously abusive parents exist in this world we've seen a lot of stories around it and that's fine but you know we need to see other stuff <laughs> sometimes too so and it's not saccharine right so it's not the same as like ma and pa kent or something where it's like <laughs> whatever you need we're always here only for you like you get this like idea that riri's mom has a lot going on you know yeah she, she's busy but she's present and i think it's particularly important because you know black women are what makes the fucking world go round and so we we don't have enough positive representations there's more representation than there's been in the past a lot of times it's of younger people who are black women but i think it's really amazing to see this mom who's i was gonna say like just a mom but i don't want to belittle the experience of being a, a parent and particularly like a, a feminine parent in the world and i think she's so great i just like cried at every panel where they interacted because i was like oh my god Ruby, you're gonna be okay you're gonna be okay man you got your mama she's so cool right i appreciate that they have an interesting establishment here too because right now there's a lot of characters it's problematic sometimes of like the black character or even just you know generally any marginalized character that is so good at everything you know like how could you hate this person they're good at everything (laughs) you know like that kind of stuff you know we don't have to be that in order to get basic human respect it generally is kind of the vibe that i think most marginalized people would respond with but i think also (laughs) that it's interesting to see a character who is as smart as riri and to see it be contrasted against other people who are this smart like miles morales is incredibly smart you know, Shuri is incredibly smart. Moon Girl, obviously, you know, we have a lot of super genius, like young super geniuses, and they all have very distinct approaches to science and they all have very distinct attitudes towards it and the way that it comes across in their lives. You know, Lunella has this kind of, I only see science. I'm so into science that I only see science. What are humans kind of approach? Riri is not that. Riri sees humanity in all of the things that she does. And the same with when we compare each and every one, you know, Amadeus versus like this character versus this character. I think that like Marvel has been doing good of like for a very, very long time. It was just Hank Pym, Hank Pym, Hank Pym, Hank Pym. (laughs) And like, you know, Reed Richards, Reed Richards, Hank Pym, Hank Pym. So it was all just kind of these same five white dudes who kind of had very interchangeable personalities. And now we have this kind of more interesting examination of what it means to be a smart kid what it means to be a kid in STEM, you know, what it means to be a kid who is a super genius and how that doesn't always mean the same thing, right? Totally. Well, you know, I was I was just thinking about this because you said this earlier that, you know, she's so emotionally present. And I, I was like, yeah, she's a really high EQ, you know, like she's she's really emotionally aware. But it's funny because like her civilian, for lack of a better term, friends are like, you're pretty not attached to reality but then you compare her to like her superhero counterparts and she's so different and so i think it's it's interesting to think of someone who i relate to this at least like walks in one world as like oh i'm very good at this thing and then walks in the other world and is like how am i bad at this like but somehow i am yeah and that like there's kind of a nuance because she is so focused on people and humanity and that's something that she's never detached from but whenever it comes to actually making attempts and making strides towards people and and it's not a life or death situation then that puts her at a loss because she's so used to being in this place of everything's so high pressure i have to be cool under pressure i have to like help people under pressure you know whenever the pressure is a little bit off then it becomes a different pressure for her because she's just like wait who am i just by myself you know how am i supposed to reach out to people just as myself that's a very organic (laughs) kind of feel to it I like really relate to how she's pretty much a workaholic, you know, she yes. works all the time. And there was a point where her friend was like, wait, didn't you just finish XYZ? Why are you still working? And I was like, oh, I just turned in an article and I have to start a new one. I get you. I mean, I don't get the superhero weight, you know, but like right. the, the pressure, the constant pressure of like creating that I get. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. 
I think my favorite part, if I have to choose one, and I am going to make myself, is Shuriri, as Okoye calls them, <laughs> which is when Shuri and Riri meet. And at first, they do not like each other. Riri's like, you're a spoiled rich girl. Shuri's like, you're some fucking loser. <laughs> I don't remember what she says about her. And then they just slowly but surely develop this friendship that is so sweet and so funny and so like based in mutual respect and based in like we believe in science we love science let's find a scientific solution and it's just uh irresistible their friendship is completely irresistible it is so so cute oh yeah i'll be so happy to see more of that going forward i love them as a friendship i think that they're really good and their interactions are Great, because they do the same thing that all great friendships do. They really teach us a lot about each character individually. So instead of being like, you know, here's these two science kids, you know, like they're like so the same or something. I think that a lot of times they illustrate the differences between them and how that can be a really positive thing. And they both approach things in such an ingenuitive way, you know. So I think all of that is important in their friendship. I I would agree that they're one of the better recent friendships of Marvel Comics, definitely. And I think it's a testament to Ewing's and Marvel's commitment to creating authentic representations of people of color. Riri and Miles don't really like each other. They don't get along super well. I think they kind of just don't vibe. Like, they're not similar. And so sometimes they just miss each other. Like, sometimes I think one of them's making a joke and the other one doesn't get that it's a joke. But they end up reconciling and being like, I don't want you to be hurt just because I don't get you. Like, I want good things for you. You're important, Miles. <laughs> and like, yeah, maybe I don't get you as well as some people. Because Miles is a very self-propelled character. He's somebody who's constantly reflecting on himself, whereas Riri is constantly reflecting on the greater world around her and how to be a part of it. And I think that that just intrinsically is, you know, two very different ways of approaching the world. Which is great. Like, we love to see our yeah. characters conflict. And be different, you know? Like, yes. It's great to see people be different. And it's the same. I We constantly, in real life, especially when we're younger, meet people that we have no reason to dislike. And we still don't necessarily know how to interact with them without feeling weird about ourselves, I guess. And so that's always something that's present, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's, again, I think this is a great example of someone who knows how to write teenagers and recent teenagers and really gets like the way that young adults think and interact with their world. And even when they have power, how powerless the experience of being a teenager is. I think that all comes through loud and clear. And I'll also say, I think that there's a real commitment to portraying diversity in a, in a very broad sense. In one of the arcs, there is a prominent fat character who is awesome she's treated like she's cool she's treated like she's powerful she's someone riri looks up to and that's not how fat people are portrayed in any media usually it could be seen as insignificant but like as a fat person i was so pleased and i think that that could be said on so many identities it's just ironheart is such a beautiful representation of the best of marvel of modern marvel certainly just incredible Right, because you have kind of a Spider-Man narrative, you know, where it's the hero who's trying to wrestle with responsibilities and also is really smart and trying to do school, you know, trying to balance the human relationships and all of that stuff. So, yeah, it, it all meshes into a really good whole that is also um, modern, but calls back to a lot of the early Marvel stories that, you know, made Marvel stand out to begin with. So always great. Ironheart is absolutely a must-read. You can pick up the copies we're talking about, the issues written by Ewing on Marvel Unlimited. You can also catch them on Comixology. But make sure you make the time to read them. These are incredible, incredible comics. I guess what I'll just ask is if the people who are listening today could... Rate and review our podcast if you like it. <laughs> Again, we're like really confused why you made it to the end of the episode if you hated it. But um, if you like it, go ahead. Give us a rate and review on literally any platform. For instance, Spotify, iTunes. What's Stitcher. the other ones? <laughs> Stitcher. We love you, Stitcher. Apple. Um, that's all of them, I think. But yeah, you could go ahead and rate and review us. That would really help us a lot. It helps a lot of people find the podcast. 
It also helps us know what you're enjoying and how we can focus on that more. But we know what you're enjoying. It's me. It's Sarah. It's comics. And we love you. a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So <laughs> we can't have it spelled out. It is B dot T-C-H-E-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And yeah, remember, there's no I'm bitch. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor, and you can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Anna Sheridan, New York Times bestselling author of Supernatural Horror, missing for nearly six months now. That's not possible. Is the compass broken? Or did I turn to the Given the circumstances of her disappearance, someone with a more vivid imagination might decide she'd pierce the veil, so to speak. Weak radio signal. 700 meters. Closing fast. There's no place for ghost stories and close encounters in this investigation, or any other. I need you to find me. Of course. What else would it be? The Sheridan Tapes, a serialized horror mystery podcast. Stream the complete series today on Realm and on all podcasting platforms.